ända från Australien, ifrån Sydney, kom han. Marcus Zusak. Och vi hade väntat länge på hans återkomst. Det var tio år sedan han senast gästade internationell författarscen. Men nu var han på plats och redo att samtala tillsammans med Ika Johannesson på Årsta Folkets hus teater. Och det här var den 25 september. Okay, we'll put the books here. That's uh, that was a very nice welcome. Yeah, hey, and I have to, I have to say too. I remember so clearly from ten years ago, and I remember Ingmar doing such a great introduction. Then there are some people you you never forget in your career, and uh, some you forget straight away, and uh, and so, but some. You, you always carry with you a little bit, and, and you're one of those, so thank you. And I think, I think Ingmar deserves another round of applause for that. <laughs> I, and I, I actually remember really clearly what I said uh, a decade ago, and, uh, and it was that I always feel, you know, that when, I come, when I've come to Sweden, I sound like I come here all the time, <laughs> uh, but I, the first time I came that, that I can sit here and, and speak in my own language, mm. it, it's not lost on me and I appreciate uh, you know, the, the great education of, of Europe and, uh, and particularly this country and, and, uh, and so I'm spoiled. And, uh, and I want to say thank you to all of you for, for being able to f- understand me, especially <laughs> in my Australian accent too. <laughs> so thank you very much and, uh, and thanks as well for, 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 for doing this. So I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with one hardcore question before you do a little reading for us. And that is, um, The Book Thief came out in 2005 it's been 13 years between these two books. Why did it take so long? <laughs> uh, this is we'll get back to this. Thanks, for <laughs> thanks, thanks straight away for that. It's, uh, <laughs> I, it's actually one of my favorite questions about, about this book, and I could talk for the next hour about it. And, uh, but it, it, it's what, it actually allows me to tell my favorite sto- one of my favorite stories. I have two stories sort of about this book, and they're both about uh, my children, and uh, this one is about my daughter. And last July, I was doing the last edits for Bridge of Clay, and I like to work in the kitchen sometimes at home. And uh, I generally like working at home because there's chaos, and I think there's, we all need chaos in our lives. We try to avoid it, but that's where our stories are. Mm. And, but I was sitting at the kitchen table, and for those of you out there with children of your own, I don't know what your kids are like, but my, my, my children eat like barbarians. And uh, my daughter was, she's 12, or she was 12 at the time, she was eating breakfast cereal across the table from me, and I'm doing some last edits on the book. And uh, I... I finally, you know, there's all this noise coming from the other side of the table and there's cereal around the bowl and, you know, I said to her, finally, I said, are you, are you okay over there? Can you just keep the noise down a little bit? I'm trying to get some work done here. And she just stopped and the spoon was halfway to her mouth and she said, you, work? 
<laughs> and then she went to school, and I thought about that all day. And uh, <laughs> I'm thinking, and finally at about two at about two o'clock in the afternoon, I thought, okay, let's see. I never count words really in a book. I don't. When and not when a writer says, "Oh, my book is 120,000, whatever," well, I don't. I, I have an idea what it means, but I'm not really that interested. But I thought, let's have a let's have a look. And so I went to the word count thing in the computer program, and it, it turned out to be 128,000 words or so. And then I thought, right. Now let's divide that by how many days there are in 13 years, and it came out to be. 1.9 words per day. <laughs> Not even two. Not even two, word, uh, two words a day. And I thought, she's actually got a point. And, uh, and I, I can't remember if I said something to her when she got home. Hey, two, nearly two words per day. But, uh, but it's, a, it's a nice story. And, uh, and I think, you know, to be more serious about it now is, I mean, the, the problem with this book and the, a book that takes 13 years to write that you know so well is someone asks you a question and immediately seven or eight answers stand up in front of you. And, uh, but I can start probably at the beginning, which is the end of The Book Thief. When I finished that book, I didn't quite realise at the time, but a few months later when I read from it from the, for the very first time and I just kind of went to pieces reading just a very, a, an obscure piece of it, I realised that I'd published four books that really meant a huge amount to me, but I'd, I'd written one book that meant everything to me. And I think I decided then that I only wanted to write books that really that meant everything to me. And I think Bridge of Clay is that book. You know, it means everything to me. And, and maybe even more at times than the book thief. And uh, yeah, after 13 years now, I think I'm ready to go back to just write a book that means something to me. <laughs> uh, and uh, but but I think I, I immediately put that kind of pressure on myself. And and Bridge of Clay was an idea I had from being 20 years old, walking around the suburb where I lived in Sydney, and. And I just had this idea about a boy wanting to build a bridge. I just saw it very clearly, and he wanted to make it beautiful and perfect. And this, he had this one great thing in his life. And so immediately you're writing a book then that's about someone trying to make something perfect. And so you think, I need to make the writing perfect. And, and so then a year goes by, and you still are working on the first page. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it took me a long time just to get started. And I think... Not to blame the book thief, I'm forever grateful to that book. It's, it's a, a book that has been, it's a lucky book, you know, it's like a magic carpet of a book, you know, it just, it's <laughs> like it's had some magic dust sprinkled on it. Every time you think it's going to go away, something little happens and gives it more life. And, uh, and, and so for a couple of years I was, I was travelling a lot and I didn't really get to make a proper start on Bridge of Clay. And so it took me a really probably 2009, 10 to really start. And, but I think the real answer is basically this, that I was trying to write better than I actually am. You know, <laughs> I was trying to reach something that I can't, couldn't quite touch. Mm. And, uh, and so in that way, it, it, it was sort of like writing for the, the world championship of myself. Mm. And, uh, and I, 
Yeah, there's a little part of me that really likes boxing. I didn't know, think I was going to mention anything like this, but there's a great documentary about Muhammad Ali and uh, Joe Frazier, who were great rivals. And there was, in their last fight that they had in Manila, the thriller in Manila, this guy said this great thing about that, that boxing match. And he said, they weren't fighting for the, world champ uh, you know, for the championship of the world. They were fighting for the world championship of each other yeah. and, uh, and, uh, and so I sort of equate that with this book but uh, so many times there was a, I quit the book twice, once for less than 24 hours uh, <laughs> because I just went this is ridiculous, I'm hopeless, it's a, you know, it, I just said right I'm going to go surfing. So I went <laughs> surfing and then I came back and I was reading uh, one of my favourite writers is the Norwegian writer Lars Sabai Christensen. Is well, that's how I pronounce it anyway. And uh, and uh, I was reading a book of his, the book called Beatles or the Beatles. And uh, I was halfway through that, and then I got really mad, and I went, "Oh bloody hell! If he can do that, I can do this," you know. <laughs> uh, and so I I I started again, and I had I. Uh, originally, the book was always going to be starting with someone sitting on the roof. Mm. Why? Because uh, it had a different narrator for the first six years. Mm. Yeah, we'll come to that yeah. small problem. And, uh, <laughs> and, but I decided to scrap the beginning and say, right, now I'm going to start in the kitchen. And he's typing on it. And Matthew, the oldest brother, is because uh, there are five brothers in the family in the book, and he's writing about the fourth of them, Clay. The eldest brother is telling the story, and uh, and as soon I realised at that moment that I started playing again. Uh, I said he went out to it. He says I went out to an old backyard in an old backyard of a town. Mm -hmm. And typically you wouldn't repeat something like that. And I thought oh, I'm playing. Writing to me is often I feel like it's like you're climbing a mountain but there's the promise of a sand pit mm. or a playground at the top where you just get to play and that's what you're working so hard not to finish a book you're working so hard to get to the point where you're free mm. to play mm. but you don't get that without doing the work and uh, and the last thing I'll finally shut up in a second and get let you ask another question they're all here to listen we can't to even you remember so it's the fine. Half the time I get to a point where I say, I can't even remember what the question was anymore. <laughs> and, uh, but the big moment in this book, and I, maybe we wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have finished at all, is if in 2016, my wife, who was the unsung hero of this book, she sat me down in the kitchen. All the best stories happen in the kitchen, I think. <laughs> and uh, she said, right, it's been 10 years. I'm giving you one week. And uh, it wasn't one week to finish the book. It was mm. one week just to be happy again writing the book. And, uh, and that week came and went just like all the rest. I just couldn't quite find what I was looking for. I'm always searching. I'm always, uh, that's not it. That's not it. I'm trying to find exactly, it's like you're walking through all these corridors looking for the light <laughs> switch. And, uh, but that that week came and went and she, she said, you have to quit writing this book. It's, you need, you, you and Clay, she talked about the main character as if he was someone who lived in the house with us. And uh, she said, I think you two need a break from each other. And, uh, and it's the old cliche that, that you don't know what you've got until it's mm. taken away from you. Mm. And, uh, and so after that amount of time, I, I sort of, 
I kind of went begging back to her and said, I think I can finish it now. And she said, yeah, you better. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, I started again and then a couple of months later, I f and what we found then, we actually went away together and we were going to read through the book in three days. You know, we took three days and in a day and a half we read through. And what we realised is I'd done 97% of the work. I'd written 85% of the book and uh, or thereabouts, you know, I'm just throwing these numbers up in the air. But um, but so much of the work was done. You know, and I think that's, and this is, I promise, the last thing I'll say is when you're a writer, you, you feel like all the time that you're failing or you feel like that you haven't done any work. Mm. And then you come to a point where you go, oh my goodness, you, my God, I've done so much work, it's ridiculous. And uh, And at that point I said, right, let's just go in, Stop working so hard at working really hard and just get your <laughs> hands dirty. I mean, and you're a writer. Yeah. You know the feeling. Yes. Where, oh, all too well. You know, you're, you're so aware of how hard you're working, but it's just, no, just get your hands dirty and love even the struggles of mm. it as well. Mm. That's the end. Thank you. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> to begin with, because um, we're going to get back to, I'm interested in, in hearing of how you... Um, um, what uh, different um, methods you had in trying to reverse this process in making it uh, work for you again. But we'll take that in a while. <laughs> sure. So Bridge of Clay is about the Dunbar boys, about the Dunbar family. Mm -hmm. A family of five brothers who are, uh, well, I don't know, how would you describe the book? Um, how would you describe the plot? <laughs> oh, God. That's, uh, it's always, you know what I'm going to do first so to distract from that, <laughs> I'm going to go straight off on a tangent and say that it took me several years to work out how to describe the book theme, mm. which finally I came to the point where I said, it's about the idea that in Nazi Germany, Hitler destroyed people with words. And this is a book about a girl who's stealing the words back and she's writing her own story with them and hopefully it's a beautiful story. And, uh, and, but Bridge of Clay to me, it, it's so easy to, you know, when someone says, what's your book about, to sort of go to, well, there are these five brothers, there's this family, but what is it, what is it really about? I, th I actually think it's about the idea that we start becoming who we are long before we're even born, and that these, these, we're born and there are these stories in us. Uh, and, uh, and I became very interested in those stories. And, uh, and so I think what we're actually made of is stories. I mean, obviously, there are physical components and, and all sorts of knowledge, but stories are what make us who we are. And, uh, and I think that's what this book is about. It's about a boy who's, who takes his life and the life of his family and he moulds all of that into this one thing that he's building. And the way I got the idea was every book needs a little bit of luck to... to to begin start to start writing, as well as a little bit of luck to finish and a little bit of luck to come into the world. And the luck I had with Bridge of Clay was that I named the boy Clayton. And in, and in it, originally it was going to be called Clayton's Bridge. I mean, this is when I'm 21 years old, walking around my old suburb where I lived in Sydney. And then I went Clay. I, I could have called him David. I could have called him anything, but I called him Clayton. And then 
immediately then I realised that Clayton, or not immediately, a few months later, a, a, a boy called Clayton is then often shortened to Clay. And then I thought of how the idea in English that there's clay the boy as a definition and clay the material. Mm. And I thought, and as soon as I thought, I went, no, not Clayton's bridge, bridge of clay. As soon as I thought that, I saw the ending of the book. I saw everything that needed to happen. And the idea is that clay as a material can be moulded into anything, but it needs fire to set it. And that's why it's no accident at the end of the book that when the river floods and the bridge is being tested, that there is the, the sun is coming up in the water and that's the fire that is testing the bridge. And uh, that doesn't give the ending away at all. It's, uh, but the ending is, typically, is typical of an ending that I have in a book, is that you think it's going to be this one thing and then suddenly you go, oh, it's not that, it's this. And, uh, and, and that's what I love about writing, is you structure, you structure things and you plan things meticulously, but you've got to be flexible as well. Mm. And you've got to allow yourself to be surprised by yourself as well. Mm. Would you like to read a section that... Sure. So a little, maybe a little introduction, mm -hmm. it will be to the boys? Yeah. Would and you like uh, to sit there or would you like to stand at the podium? Oh, no, I'll sit here. Okay. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd feel a bit weird <laughs> at, at the podium. That would be very official. Some uh, authors do prefer the podium. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> funny. I mean, and again, now I'm just going to start talking, is, uh, <laughs> is uh, often, like, usually, it's very unusual that I come out from the back. Uh, usually, I mean, because normally I'm in a bookshop, not so much in a theatre or I'm somewhere, and usually I'm just sitting with the audience, which I love. It's like I can't... I, I always find it funny, and it's not a criticism of other writers, and some of them are friends of mine, you know, and they talk about their fans, and I can't say the word fan, <laughs> because, you know, it's... it's I don't... That, that to me is like movie stars and, and uh, you know, music stars and things like that. But I'm a reader, you know, and so I, I feel like I have readers. And so it's great to come out from the readers. Uh, and sometimes I'm sitting next to someone and they don't even know it's me. And then I get up to speak. And I kind of like that, that, uh, <laughs> that, that the books are bigger than you are, you know, and, and I really like that. And uh, so to read from, from this book, I, I get to tell a story. And so this is my other favourite story about, about <coughs> the book, is that when I got into that period where I was just getting my hands dirty, again, writing, writing the book, I thought, I'm going to stop worrying so much about the reader. You always have to cross that line at some point where you stop worrying what everyone thinks and you've just got, you start writing for the characters in the book. And, uh, and, and so all of these little memories started coming back to me that I thought, I can really use that in this book. And my favourite one was, is this one, where my, I remembered in 2016, my son was six years old. But two years before that, when he was four, we were on holidays. And as we went down the coast from Sydney, three hours, and uh, it's just a small shack, and, and sometimes I, I, I would go and work there, but we're on holidays there. And it was a really hot day, it was about 38 degrees. And I did something that I very rarely do. I, I decided to wash my car. And, uh, and at some point, I just took my T-shirt off and the back of my, I just brushed sand and out of the back of my car. And the back of my car, to give you an idea, it's full of dog hair, sand, lolly wrappers and, uh, and things. But I just took my T-shirt off and I just started 
getting sand out and my son came around the corner and uh, he was four years old and he saw, we, saw me without my t-shirt on and my kids, there's always a story before the story or inside the story. <laughs> and so kind of what this book is about and uh, my kids don't call me dad, they call me pop which is more normally like for a grandfather. Mm. But, but some kids do call their parents Pop. And it, we, the reason they call me Pop is there are these books um, that called the Berenstain Bears. And uh, they're just for little kids. And I found these old books of mine and I read them to my kids. And it's basically a dad who's always showing his, his children how to do something, but the dad is a real idiot. <laughs> and, the, and his kids call him Pop. And so when I read that to my kids, they started calling me Pop. And uh, maybe because of a resemblance to the dad in the books. And, uh, and so when my son came around the corner that day and he saw me without my T-shirt on, uh, he just stopped dead in his tracks and he looked at me he just looked he just looked and everything stopped for that moment he just said hey hey pop what are you doing here in just your nipples <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i st and then i stopped and just looked at him and i thought two things i thought that's genius, you know, and not that I think my kids are not, I'm not saying anything bad about my kids by saying they're not gifted, they're not, they're not hugely, they're just normal, pretty nice kids, you know, but every four-year-old is a genius because yeah. they're still putting language together and, uh, and, and of course, the second thought I had was I might be able to use that and, uh, <laughs> and so, and, and so on that note, I'll just read. This is, we're, we're meeting this family for the first time. Matthew is the narrator. He's the eldest Dunbar brother. The, their parents are named Michael and Penelope or Penny. And uh, the rest you can work out. Okay, and this is just about Clay, who's the fourth brother being born. And, uh, and a few little pieces beyond that. So this is how it goes. Once... In the tide of Dunbar past, there were five brothers, but the fourth of us was the best of us, and a boy of many traits. How did Clay become Clay, anyway? In the beginning, there was all of us, each our own small part to tell the whole, and our father had helped every birth. He was first to be handed to hold us. As Penelope liked to tell it, he'd be standing there, acutely aware, and he'd cry at the bedside, beaming. He never flinched at the slop or the burnt-looking bits as the room began to spin. For Penelope, that was everything. When it was over, she'd succumbed to dizziness. Her heartbeat leapt in her lips. It was funny, they liked to tell us, how when we were born, we all had something they loved. Me, it was my feet, the newborn crinkly feet. Rory, it was his punched-up nose when he first came out, and the noises he made in his sleep. Something like a world title fight, but at least they knew he was alive. It's funny, that, that description is exactly when my kids were born. I loved my daughter's newborn, like the crinkly feet, you know, they're all wrinkled. And our son, when he was born, his nose was squashed across the side of his face. And we said to the doctor, we said, have a look at his nose. And the doctor leaned in and he looked and he went, Oh, yeah. And he reached out and he just went... <laughs> and then it was straight. And we went, how good is that? And, uh, and, he was the, 
and, and again, parents, you know what it's like to have a quiet baby that doesn't, it, it's scary, you know, and so, and he made so much noise, it was like he was fighting in the, in, in his, you know, cradle there, and we thought, at least we know he's alive, you know, it was, it was really good. Henry had ears like paper, Tommy was always sneezing, and of course, there was clay between us, the boy who came out smiling. As the story went, when Penny was in labour with Clay, they left Henry, Rory and me with Mrs Chilman next door. On the drive to the hospital, they nearly pulled over. Clay was coming quickly. As Penny would later tell him, the world had wanted him badly. What she didn't do was ask why. Was it to hurt, to humiliate or to love and make great? Even now it's hard to decide. It was morning, summer and humid, and when they made it to the maternity ward, Penny was shouting, still walking, and his head was starting to crown. He was very nearly torn rather than born, as if the air had reefed him out. In the delivery room, there was a lot of blood. It was splayed on the floor like murder. As for the boy, he lay in the muggy atmosphere and was strangely, quietly smiling, his blood-curdled face dead silent. When an unsuspecting nurse came in, she stood open-mouthed and blaspheming. She stopped and said, Jesus Christ. It was our mother, all dizzy, who replied. I hope not, she said, and our father still grinned. We know what we did to him. Now I'm just going to read one last small little bit. This is from, a, from years later on. Let's see. In those days too, I remind myself, our parents were something else. Sure, they fought sometimes, they argued. There was the odd suburban thunderbolt, but they were mostly those people who'd found each other. They were golden and bright lit and funny. Often they seemed in cahoots somehow, like jailbirds who wouldn't leave. They loved us, they liked us, and that was a pretty good trick. After all, take five boys, put them in one small house and see what it looks and sounds like. It's a porridge of mess and fighting. I remember things like mealtimes and how sometimes it got too much, the forks dropping, the knives pointing and all those boys' mouths eating. They'd be arguing, elbowing, food all over the floor, food all over our clothes. And how did that piece of cereal end up there on the wall? until a night came when Rory sealed it. He spilt half his soup down his shirt. Our mother didn't panic. She stood, cleaned up, and he would eat the rest of it shirtless. And our, and our father got the idea. We we're all still celebrating when he said it. Go on, you lot too. Henry and I nearly choked. Sorry? You didn't hear me, he said. Oh, shit, said Henry. Should I make you take your pants off too? For a whole summer, we ate like that, our T-shirts heaped near the toaster. To be fair, though, and to Michael Dunbar's credit, from the second time onwards, he took his own shirt off with us. Tommy, who was still in that beautiful phase when kids speak totally unfiltered, shouted, Hey, hey, Dad, what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> See, I told you I'd use it. The rest of us roared with laughter, especially Penny Dunbar. But Michael Dunbar was up, sorry, but Michael was up to the task, a slight flickering in one of his triceps. And what about your mum, you blokes? Should she go shirtless too? She never needed rescuing, but it was Clay who'd often be willing. 
No, he said, but she did it. Her bra was old and scruffy looking. It was faded, strapped to each breast. She ate and smiled regardless. She said, now don't go burning your chests. We knew what to get her for Christmas. <laughs> and I, I, I thank you. I, thanks for being so kind because, you know, let's face it, we all know I made a few mistakes when I was reading. <laughs> uh, but a few things that I can point out about that reading. The first is you spend so much time as a, as a writer waiting to write the last line of your book, but also wait, like, waiting for the moment when the book is finished for, for a line that was in the book when you first started it. One of the first lines I ever wrote in Bridge of Clay was the line where... Matthew says, he's wondering whether the world wanted clay badly. Was it to hurt and humiliate or to love and make great? That was one of the first ideas. And the book is always going between those two things. And, uh, and the second thing is just the description of Penny Dunbar's underwear. And uh, there was a lot of usage of the word broken in this book. And, uh, and I thought, ah... Oh, uh, and originally it was u described as old and broken looking and uh, and I was never happy and I would change it and I'd go that that's no good see searching all the time for the exact right word and it's the one thing I can say about this book is that every word in it is considered and every word is deliberate everything is there for a reason and uh, but that word was really bothering me. And every day, I'd put a new word in every time. And I'd go, that's not it, that's not it. And then finally one day, I just woke up and I just went, scruffy. <laughs> and it was the right word. And uh, it, because it reminded me, you know, we had that idea, or there's the idea that a novel should be showing you the world in a totally unique way, mm -hmm. but reminds you but you can find yourself in it. And when I, in that moment, this fictitious world made me remember my own clothesline as a, as a kid and being the youngest of four, four children and our clothesline and what it looked like, you know, and especially all the, all the underwear and it was always like old and shit, you know, it was always old and like, um, that scruffy sort of stringy and mm. and uh, and when I saw that, that's when I, I knew it was the right word. Mm. So there you go. I'm pretty much in love with Penelope Dunbar as a mother and as a person. Um, there are five boys. There's a mother and a father, and there are very many things happening in this book. Um, how did you decide to make these people into? the Dunbar family in your book? How did you build them? Yeah, originally I did write, I wrote this book when I was about 23 or 24 years old and uh, for the first time. Yeah. And that original Was it like version, a short version? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was uh, about 150 pages and I knew it wasn't, sometimes you finish a book and uh, you go, that's just not, you even go all the way through the end and you go, that's not the right book. And in that family, Clay had a brother and a sister. And when I finished The Book Thief and I was starting Bridge of Clay and I had other, I, I remember there was another writer who said to, he also had a book that was set in Germany in World War II. And, uh, he, but he also wrote a lot of uh, books for young children. And uh, he said, oh, I'm just writing a complete, just a really short book now to get this out of my mm -hmm. system. And, he's, and, and I, 
immediately in my heart, I, I knew, I just went, no, I don't want to do that. I want to take everything that this book has given me and I want to bet everything. Mm. I want to bet, let's take everything and bet everything, take it all again. And, uh, and so I thought, he's got a brother. And then I went, no, he's one of five brothers. And it just felt right. And so, and I immediately had a brother, the youngest brother I knew would love animals because there were always going to be animals in the book the second time around. The animals were really important. And half the book, okay, so these brothers, they have a, uh, I will come back to answer the question properly. There were the, the brothers, that one, Tommy, the youngest, they have, they have a border collie dog, they have a, a cat, a goldfish, a pigeon, and a mule. And I don't, it's not really giving too much away to say that this book is almost written around the mule. The <laughs> mule is extremely important mm. to the book. And uh, that's why there's horse racing in the book mm. and, uh, and, and all, all sorts of other thing, reasons. That's why the, all the other animals are in the book. They're all in there for the mule. And uh, because Clay is a very ambitious character and there's that sort of expression that all ambition is actually an ass. And, uh, and so the, that was always working that way. And what I realised when I started, though, that there were the five brothers and that but I wanted to write the story of their parents as well. And actually, Penelope, the book gets talked about, about the five brothers and how rough they are with each other, which is, I think, you know, typical of what five brothers living on their own would be like. But I wanted to go into the backstory of of the family. And I think really, to me, people talk about the men in the novel, but actually it's three female characters. To me, especially two of them that are, the, Penny is the heart of the novel, but Carrie Novak, who is Clay's best friend, and she's an apprentice jockey, uh, is very important. And then a smaller character named Abby Hanley, who is Michael Dunbar's first wife, is also very, she plays a very small part in the book, but to me it's a very important part as well. But I, I just, I decided that, uh, that we, we really live our lives moving forward, but we can't help but carry memory with us. And, and that's why the book is written in a kind of tide. It goes between the past and the present all the time. And uh, while it's building, moving forward as well, but Clay is going out on the tide to build the bridge and then the, the history of the family is coming in on the tide. And, uh, and I, I feel like that to me always felt, it was the only way the book could be written. Mm. And uh, because if we, if we started from the very beginning and started with Penelope's story and Michael's story, we wouldn't meet Clay until about page 150. And I felt like we needed the main character in the book from the beginning. And everything affects everything else. And, uh, and the past and the present come closer and closer together until we find out in the 99th out of 100 chapters, what Clay is carrying mm. with him and what has happened to him in the past that makes him how he is and why he needs to build this bridge. Which, without um, saying anything, floored me. I did not see it coming. Oh, really? At all. Oh, that's good. Uh, because, yeah, uh, you, you don't know when you're writing a book. You don't know. I had no idea. Yeah, I mean, and to me, it, and there are all these... Uh, just little, there are so many clues throughout the, the book mm. that are always laid. When Clay goes to, this seemingly has nothing to do with what we've just talked about, but when Clay 
goes to leave to build the bridge. And it's at a great cost because he's leaving his brothers, which has been... So what happens is Michael Dunbar comes home. We know from the beginning that Penelope has died and, Ma and Michael, their father, has actually abandoned these five mm. boys. And we don't really know why. And, uh, and when Clay goes to build the bridge with their father, who comes to offer this at, at the beginning of the book, Matthew says, basically, you can leave and you have your free will to leave, but when you come back... If you try to come back into this house, you're going to have to get through me first. Mm. And, and he uh, says that to Clay. Yeah, he says, yes, thank you. He says that to Clay. And, uh, and so when Clay leaves, he takes a little memento from each of his brothers. And one of the things he takes is the iron token from the Monopoly board game. And it's one of my favourite little details of the book that you don't find out the reason or the story behind the Monopoly iron until 300 pages later. And, uh, but I think that's how we live. You know, we don't live... We, our lives aren't organised stories. And uh, they're always coming in and out of us all the time and we're remembering things and, we're, and aspiring for things. And that was why I wanted to write the book in that kind of way. And I wanted to be really... And I think this is important. I wanted to be really respectful to readers and not to always be holding the hand of the reader. You know when you see this, this moment that you're going to find out, you know? I don't, and, and the book never, the book never sort of says, all right, I'm gonna make it easy for you and tell you everything now. And I feel like books, we need to know, we live lives now where we want to know everything straight away. And I feel like books are like one of the last frontiers where we get to say, no, that, that ends here. <laughs> We can still be patient. We can yeah. still appreciate how a story can unfold and reveal itself slowly. Mm. But that also, um, the way you write, um, the style of language, which is, um, let me see if I can describe it correctly. It's quite rich to me. Mm -hmm. It's rich, it's full, uh, there's many words, full of meaning, adjectives. It's uh, lush language. Uh, compared to many other writers who has who have much more um, um, minimalist writing, and that also at least makes me as a writer when I read your books, it takes me longer because I have to think more, which also has the effect of uh, at least to me staying more in the present with the book than instead of sometimes hurrying forward, which I can mm -hmm. do some you know like a um, affected by the times as they are. Do you work with language like that um, deliberately? Yeah, I think, I think what I'm doing two th things maybe at the same time is that actually I don't write big long paragraphs. It's actually, so it's spare in a way that I often, you know, I will have a one line sentence mm -hmm. You know, and then another one-line sentence, and then another as three separate paragraphs. But at the same time, I'm what I love about writing. One of the great things for me is that, like, I want to see visions when I when I read. I want to see, and and that idea of playfulness to me, that's to it's it's. I don't have a huge vocabulary. I'm not I'm not a hugely intelligent writer in in terms of, you know, my I doubt I have a very high IQ, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but with a small pool of words or with a certain pool of... a limited pool of words, the, the combinations are almost limitless. And so I'm always trying to put... 
were, and I think this is a very typical of the book thief as well, is that um, you, by using death as a narrator, I could write a sentence, for example, that I remember my dad criticising me for, and uh, because he edited the German in that book, oh. I asked him to edit the German, and he was doing such a good job of that that he thought it was a good idea to start editing the English <laughs> as well. And, uh, and there's a the sentence that in English uh, where it says that the mayor's wife was sitting hunched drunk at mm. her desk. Mm. And, of course, the, the, the more typical expression is punch drunk. And by just taking a word that it rhymes with it, and to me it was... To me, it takes the typical, the normal thing and, and gives the reader an, a, a whole new meaning or several meanings in the one mm -hmm. sentence. And uh, I was in Taiwan earlier this year and I talked to... Uh, that the book was already published there, but the, the publisher wanted to... She was asking me a few questions. She said, I've got to ask you about a few, quest a few sentences in this book. And I can't remember what it was anymore, but she said to me, uh, she asked the question and I said, oh, that actually means three different things. Mm. It's referring back to this moment earlier and this use of language earlier. And it's between Carey and Clay. And I said, she's saying this, but she's also meaning this. And it's about something else that they, they mm. share secretly, you know? And, and so I like the idea that you're building language and you're building character as well. And... For me, I always knew with this book as well that it was as much about the way the words were put together. Mm. And, uh, and I feel like more and more as I've sort of grown up as a writer that that's what I'm trying to do. It's not just story. It's the story of the words. And I feel like every book has its own... There's the language it's written in and there's the language under the language. Mm. And... Uh, again, using the book thief as an example, I can use both books as an example. The language of the book thief that's under the language is, was something that I found straight away. It was like I'd scratched something open in my head and I pulled that world out. And with Bridge of Clay, it was a language that was very hard to find. Mm. It took years and years to get the voice right and to feel what I needed to feel, what the words were representing. And, uh, you know, but that's okay too. I don't... I'm actually happy that the book took 13 years now because, you know, you, you might... You, there's one little idea in it towards... or one chapter towards the end mm. that I wrote in the 12th year and, I'm, and it, it's part of the, the thing that makes the book the personality that it is. Would you like to say which chapter? Yeah, it's a chapter... It's a chapter that relates to the female character I was telling you about, Abby Hanley, mm. and she writes a letter to Clay. Mm. And, uh, and that... What happened was I, I took one little element of the book out, thank God, because <laughs> uh, there was already enough in it, and I had a spare chapter that I needed to fill, mm. and it was just the right thing. And, you know, and, and I'm really grateful you know, that that happened in the 12th year of writing the book. Mm. But hopefully it'll never take me 13 years <laughs> to write another book. Um. Ingmar had chosen a song from My Life as a Dog mm -hmm. as your introduction music, and the movie is present in the book. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I do know. Actually, I do know. It's... Uh, <laughs> I wanted... Okay, so it happens. There's a, there's a moment, actually, and it's one of the sentences in the book. So when we go into the backstory and we see that time leading up to when... Penelope is dying 
and, uh, and Matthew says, you know, you know your mother's dying when she takes each, of, each sibling out personally, you know, on their own. And, uh, and the thing she does with Matthew is she takes him to the cinema. And I decided to take, uh, that she would take him to, to see my life as a dog, which is, you know, to, uh, to a cinema that shows old foreign movies. Mm. And, uh, and it's because of a movie, it's a film that I love. And uh, I actually have a poster that I got on eBay and I, even, and I had to iron it. And, uh, and then I finally got it framed earlier this year. And, I, and because we just had our house fixed up and now it's in my office framed. And, uh, and, I, and, it's the, and it, the poster is of that beautiful scene. And I think this is why it's in the book and why I hold the film dear. That it's that beautiful scene where Ingmar and, uh, and uh, now I'm forgetting the girl's name. It's it's Saga, Saga yeah, right? Saga, yeah, and she, they they're boxing one-handed in the barn together, and she just she traps him and she just hugs him because he's about to leave, and it's and the image is that that image and uh, on the poster, and uh, and I think it's such a beautiful moment in that film, let alone in any film, mm. and uh, and to me it's. It's it's those moments that I'm writing towards, and uh, and and Matthew has a love of movies and films, and uh, and there are other films mentioned like Chariots of Fire, which which is a much satirised film mm. because of the slow motion. Yeah. You know, but when you, the thing is, I remember watching that film when I was maybe ten years old, and I thought it was a bit boring. But then I saw it as an adult, and I just thought, oh my god, that there is not a wasted moment in that film. It, and it is a, and it, and it's a film about people making brave decisions. And uh, and but my life as a dog, I I, I, I probably watch that movie once once a year, mm. and. Uh, it reminds you, you want to hold dear to you when you're in general, whether you're a writer or not a writer, is that again coming to the idea that we're made of stories, and so it makes sense to remind ourselves of the stories that we love and the the stories that that make us want to be better people, mm. you know. And I think that film is 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 one of them. And I I could, maybe could have chosen any other film, but that one felt exactly right. And I kind of like then the moment that that uh, that that Penelope asks Matthew if he fell in love with Saga, the way I did. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I first saw the film, and, and do every time I watch it, and, uh, and he feels himself going really red, because of course he did, mm. you know. Mm. And, uh, but you, you build things around that, and I think that's at a time where she can't, she's struggling to eat, and her, her ice cream that she buys, at, uh, Penelope's ice cream that she buys at the movie just melts in the plastic bag. Mm. And uh, so you're always, and it's interesting too, because uh, Ingmar's mother in My Life as a Dog is dying mm. as well. So uh, I actually just made that connection now. <laughs> so I, half the time I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> the Sydney Morning Herald uh, has called this book an Australian epic. And I'm curious, um, in what way do you think it's typically Australian? Um, I think I, I would probably slightly disagree that it's an, Aus an Australian epic. Uh, to me, it's more maybe 
I'll maybe just go slightly to the left of that and say it's it may be a, a suburban epic where uh, I wanted to write about... We all think we have these dull lives where, you know, the nothing really too interesting happens, but we all have people die on us. Mm. Uh, we all fall in love. We all have big arguments in the kitchen or somewhere else in the house. And, uh, you know, a good friend of mine died while I was writing this book. And, uh, you know, that's the problem when you write a book that, that takes 13 years, you know, things like that happen. And uh, so I wanted to write about the big moments in our lives, you know, and, uh, and, but if it's an Australian epic, maybe it's in the sense of, you know, those sort of immigration stories. And, uh, you know, and it's the story of my parents coming to Australia and, and just making a new life. Mm. And, uh, and, and I think it's probably very Australian in the way that these brothers interact with each other and just, just the language in their dialogue, I suppose, mm. feels very Australian to me. And, uh, but, and, and usually an Australian epic is, is about working class people and, uh, but probably most epics are, and uh, oh, but then there are epics about royal families yeah. as well. So uh, maybe that element of family, the element of family, and and screwed up families make for a good epic as mm. well. But um, but to me, it's uh, you know, there's the choosing Matthew as the narrator. It was such a big decision, you know, because pretty much everyone... Who did everyone, you start out with? Well, I started out, Kerry Novak, the Clay's best friend, had a younger sister at one point. Mm. And, uh, God, the amount of like <laughs> thousands of times that I read words that she wrote and the beginning that she wrote uh, or narrated, and then after six years, I, I took her out mm. completely. And I just didn't like where it was heading. And I think I knew that all along, but I just wouldn't allow myself to believe it. Mm. And then finally, I said, there was a period where she and Matthew were fighting it out for six months. But then I had Henry narrate. <laughs> I had Rory narrate. Then I had Tommy narrate. I even tried Penny Dunbar narrating, and she was dead, you know. And I thought, <laughs> I had death as the narrator last time. I can't have a dead character narrating, you know. Uh, I've become the, the death guy, you know, yeah. and uh, if I'm not already. And, uh, and so what happened was it was when Matthew on the first page then, when, when he said, actually, here's the truth, is that origin when I first stopped and went from the roof to the kitchen, mm -hmm. I, was, I had Henry narrating. And, uh, but then again, I changed back to Matthew. So you're always, you're just always pushing and pulling and, and trying to, um, you know, almost bruise the book into, into the way, how you want it to be. Mm. And, uh, and then it's when you stop missing things and when you stop, when, when Maggie stopped calling herself back into the book and it was Matthew all the time and it, I knew from on the first page, but then I, again, I was reminded on the last page. And this is a little bit of a clue, but I don't think it's too bad, is it, or a spoiler, I guess. But on the last page of the book, and it's not the last line of the book, don't worry, but Matthew calls Clay he, two things. He's, he calls him Clay the boy, mm. and he says, but he also, he, he says, Clay the boy, who was also the man of this house. And, uh, and that's a kind of link back to, to really what has happened mm. to Clay. Mm. And, and it's not that, uh, yes, a terrible thing has happened to Clay, but it's also a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that's one thing that I should try to, uh, you know, reiterate or, or, you know, or, or let people know that I think Clay 
you know, I, you know, even now it's kind of nice to f start feeling a bit emotional, even, you know, talking about... Matt, I found out again on the last page of the book how much Clay means to Matthew mm. and that he, he's, he's writing the book to remind himself how much he loves his brother mm. and how much he just wants him to come home. Because Clay then does go away for a, a long period of time between the end of the book and uh, by the end of the book. And, uh, and I think on that point, I can just say what I did with this book that I never did before was I read through it with people mm. and when it was finished uh, or nearly finished. And I read through with a trusted colleague of mine and at the end of the book, when certain things were happening, I was just very emotional and she, she said to me, and it was something to do with Penelope, and she said, oh, who is that in your real life? You know, mm. who is that? And I said, she said, who are you crying for when mm. you're reading? And I said, I thought in my mind, I didn't say this to her, I said, don't, I thought, don't you get it? You know, but what I said to her was, it's not for anyone in my real life, it's for them, mm. you know, it, and it's what made me want to be a writer, is that you're reading fiction and you know it's not real, but you believe it when you're inside it. Mm. And that to me is the ultimate sort of magic. Mm. And, uh, and in so many ways that comes back to the idea of stories are who we are. And, uh, and, and that's what I feel the book is about. Mm. Yes, <laughs> very well put. <laughs> uh, it's uh, that could have gone either way. That could have been, yeah, geez, he's gone on for so long. I stopped listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking of maybe we should let the audience in. Yeah, of yeah. course. If there are any questions from the audience, a hand mic. While they're grabbing a hand mic, do you get emotional still now, talking about it? Oh, Did I just see a tear in yeah, your eye? Oh That's yeah, what of I course. was thinking. Like but uh, you know, I'm but I'm very soft. Okay. You know, I'm I'm very, uh, you know, I'm I feel like I'm a, a pretty emotional writer, mm -hmm. and uh, and I think I want to go to those places. Yeah. And and sometimes I love a book that I feel like wasn't quite didn't was was I I will risk someone criticizing me for being sentimental because I, hopefully there's enough heart and guts in the, in, a, in the book as well um, that it's it, like again both the end of ends of these books I think it does start elevating into you know very emotional territory but I didn't want to turn that volume down I want to turn it up mm -hmm. at those points and hopefully write in a way that it can be emotional without being too overly sentimental, you know, so that, it's, that it still feels real and not manipulative, mm. that it's in, in, tr in tune with the heart of the book as well. Mm. And I know with questions in the audience, it's, it's a nerve-wracking time. Uh, see, if I ask a question in the audience, my heart beats so badly <laughs> and, uh, and I'm usually sitting at the back and then everyone turns around and looks at me and then I think, what a mistake. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but don't be afraid of asking a question. Uh, yeah, and, and I you can have to give me a helping hand because... I see a hand here. There's someone yes. at the front. And I'm just going to tell Linus, stay calm. I will... I will uh, where are you, Linus? Good. I will... Uh, Sort it out with you when, when, when the time comes. What's happening with Linus? Uh, Shh. Who's Linus? <laughs> it's, 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 it's okay. okay. One gets curious here. What's going on <laughs> yes. in the audience? I have a question. I'm, I'm the translator of this, but the Swedish translator. So we Thank you so much <laughs> for 
enduring. And I, I had some things to solve while translating it, but this, this was one thing that I never solved, so I had to kind of skip it. It was, the, you were mentioning about Michelangelo, the fourth Buonarroti. Mm -hmm. Why the fourth? I. It's a, it's a, it's an un, that's a, an unusual uh, reason why, because Clay is the fourth Dunbar boy, and as it turns out, Michelangelo was not the fourth brother of, no. of the Bonarotis. <laughs> He's the second. He, and, uh, and originally I thought he was the fourth. And oh. this was actually something we came across. At one, and uh, every... Well, I'm just... I think it's really important in these situations, to be absolutely honest, is that it was a mistake. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't okay. a lie. It was a mistake. A it was a mistake. Yeah, it was a mistake. Which means that I'm in the clear that yeah, I skipped and, it. <laughs> and you know, and it was actually, it was actually, um, and this shows the the true the the great professionalism of translators. <laughs> it was the German translator who questioned it uh -huh. with me, and uh, the book had just been, you know, and you go through. I mean, I scoured everything with this book from bridge building to, you know, the, my, the works of Michelangelo, to, uh, every, you know, every horse racing, everything that you could possibly do, and then you still find a mistake. And it's also, I can, uh, the book thief, as a, another example, this is an even greater mistake than that, was that when the book first came out, there was mention of a German character of Max Vandenberg with his a friend of his, and they talk about he's wearing a yellow star. Mm. And then someone wrote to me, and you know, because you do all this research, you try to get every single thing right. And you, uh, and the reason I can talk about it is that I always feel like I have worked with integrity, and you still make a mistake, you know. Um, and in that case, someone wrote to me, and they, she was so nice about the book, and she said, you know, I really love the book, and I, but I just wanted to let you know that in Germany. Uh, was the was the one place that Jewish people didn't wear a star, mm. and we and but and then we and I and so I t and it was wasn't a very strong reference. It was a le small reference, and I and so I immediately took it out. But I still didn't know why. Mm. And then I was sitting in a small bookshop in Washington, and uh, and I was taught telling the story to to somebody. And uh, there was a man sitting in the corner and he said, I can tell you why that, that that was the case. And he said, because at that time, he said, he, even they thought, the whole idea with Germany and the Germans, they still said that the, the Jews of Germany were still better mm. than the Jews of, of the rest of Europe. And so they didn't have to wear a yellow star. You know, they still wanted to kill them. And, uh, and persecute them, but that, and so to find that out, you know, along the line too, and to me, like that, that's a really grave mistake in, in the book, but again, I know I wrote that book and this book, you know, to, to, put, to put something good in the world as well, and the reason, you know, we kept the fourth Michelangelo, mm -hmm. we had a big talk about it then at home, should we take it out? I said, let's take it out of the book. Let's just, let's make a correction uh, for the next edition. And, uh, and, and then we, we, someone said, oh, maybe just leave it, maybe. And then what I thought was, there, are, there were two reasons why I kept it, ended up keeping it in. One was that technically, 
He's still the fourth Buona Roddy because there's the mother, the father, the first son, <laughs> and, uh, and the second son. So he's the fourth Buona Roddy. The other one was that in my mother-in-law, who Penelope Dunbar is actually based on, uh, she found one misprint in the book, one typing error. And, uh, and of course, we're all devastated, you know, because every word, you, you know, when I say every word is accounted for, except that one. Mm. And, uh, and, then I, I, and then we just, I said to my editor, who was, she was more devastated than me, I said, that's just Achilles. Achilles is the name of the mule in the book. I said, that's just Achilles poking his nose through. <laughs> uh, and uh, because you'd strive for perfection to make one beautiful, great thing, but you're human, so you can't. And, yeah. uh, and in a way, it's the point of the whole book uh, is that, but you still have to try. So uh, thanks for asking that question. I hope <laughs> it solves the mystery. I, yes, it's it just that I, I uh, made a mistake. Actually, I have another, you know, you, you have always these fictitious books mentioned in your mm -hmm. books. That's one of your typical features. Yeah. And you have a book called The Sad, Glad, Mad, Bad, Glad Man. Yes. And that book didn't exist, as far as I know. No. But it does now, because I've written <laughs> it. Oh, th I've written it for you. Oh, <gasps> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And it's... And it's illustrated by my mother. Sorry, say again. And it's illustrated by my mother. Oh, so that's it's a great. Teamwork. I have to give you a hug for that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It, if, I, if I ever, not that I ever would, but if, there, if I ever write an autobiography, that would be the title, probably. <laughs> that's such a nice gift. That's great. That's oh. beautiful. Perfect. I, and I'm sure all the rhyming in the, the book as well would have been difficult too. So thank you. To people who, most translators who meet me afterwards usually say, I really wanted to kill you. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I can understand that because when you're making up words, mm. in en like English words that don't actually exist, which, and an example on the on page one. I mean, when you see that on page one, you go, oh my God, because Matthew goes out to a small town to dig up the typewriter to write the story on, and he refers to it as perfect pirateless treasure. Mm. And just even in that, the section I read where the word shirtless, it doesn't really, you know, it's just bending language all the time. And, uh, you know, sorry? Oh, uh, yeah, that, yeah, that makes it hard, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs> sorry for everything. Do we have another question? So, yeah. Let's see. I'm making a jump. There we go. The old man. Please. Thank you. Hi. Uh, you, can, you can raise if you like. God. <laughs> like my heart isn't being <laughs> fast enough. Anyways. Uh, how do you feel about getting this sort of opportunity? Because it's one thing to, like, write a book and people read it and they interpret it in their own way. Uh, but here you are, like, explaining metaphors and things. Um, what do you think about doing this? Uh, this is... Well, the one thing I'll say is when... 
It's very rare that, I mean, I know I talked about being in Washington and being, being in Taiwan earlier in the year, and it sounds like I just, I'm traveling all the time, but this is, it's quite rare that I'm always away. And, but when I am, people often say, oh, you must be exhausted, you must be, and I say, this isn't even work. Like, it's a joy. And, and sure, you can get nervous before speaking and, and all that kind of thing, but it, it, to me, the fact that there are people in an audience and we're here for books and for stories, and it actually gives me so much faith in the idea that, you know, people said even 20 years ago that books are, books are going to die. If books were going to die, they would already be dead. And, uh, and so for me, it's a privilege to meet the readers of my books, but also just the readers of books in general because I'm a reader. And so for me, it's like, it's a special club. And, uh, and, it, and it always makes me want to write more and, and read more as well. So for me, it's just a privilege. So, uh, so yeah, definitely. So it's not an effort, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. Do we have the last question? Yeah. Over there? Uh, but you, you had a question as well. Do you have, do you have a short question? No, ple please, please, please. The, the description of the parents was so quintessentially Australian and it reminded me so much of my parents as well, a lot of my friends, parents, etc. So I was kind of like, was that inspired by your family, your parents? Because it was like reading it and hearing it again was just like I was sitting at my kitchen table watching my parents, that kind of relationship with the yeah, they were in cahoots against me and my two brothers. And yeah. It just it brought back so much of my childhood as well. Yeah, uh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> so, isn't do you know what's amazing is that the sorry, what's your name? Ryan. Okay, Ryan, who's just asked that question. We're in. It's amazing that we're sitting in Stockholm. In the, the place he said he's from is literally down the road from where I grew up, and it's a it's pretty much the same suburb, and. Uh, and yeah, so that's amazing. And uh, <laughs> see, and, and coming back to the previous question of books and stories, it's mm -hmm. you know, um, that's a that's a great story, and also just shows the strength of stories as well. And uh, but I, the that idea of growing up and and being that's there's a there's a a tendency now where I think people want to be. Uh, there's a lot of talk of politics in stories and, uh, and it's a good thing, you know, about diversity in books and things like that. But I, I was always, from the very beginning, wanting to just write about a family. And when I talk about that, I'm even talking about the very first book that I wrote. I, I feel like I want to write about humans mm -hmm. and, uh, and, when, and talking about parents. There are so many little details that, that my dad, always, who was a house painter, always had Tic Tacs in his combi van and in his overalls, and it's the little details that count. I always, someone pointed out to me that there's a lot of toast in my books too, <laughs> and uh, there are, there's always a toaster. And so for me, it's bringing a story down, uh, hopefully having a book that has big ideas, but is brought down to the level of the street and the home. And so you hope that your books can be for everybody to recognize themselves in. So, so thank you very much. <laughs> And the last question. Please. And the last question. I'm reading your book, the, uh, I Am the Messenger. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's been translated into Swedish. Uh, how did you get the idea? Because that's also an unusual idea. Okay, uh, thank you. It's funny, 
at going to places around the world, there's always someone or there's a group in the audience who say, yeah, book thief. Uh, that's all good and well, but they always want to talk to me about that book, about um, The Messenger. And, uh, and it is published in, in, in Sweden and uh, in Swedish. But um, that book came, I can tell you exactly where that book came from. And now I'm going to mention another place that you'll, you'll know of, is that I was down in a place called Kayama, which is about an hour and a half from Sydney. Uh, an hour from Warrenora Heights, and uh, and I was in the car with my wife. We were eating fish and chips outside of and in the car outside the bank, and uh, where there's diagonal parking, and there was a sign, uh, a, a street sign, and it said it was a 15-minute parking zone, and we're sitting there eating fish and chips, and my wife said to me, "Look at that! It's a 15-minute parking zone." outside the bank. <laughs> when was the last time you were in the bank for less than 15 minutes, you know? Because there's always a big line. And then she said to me, I can't even take the credit, you know? She said, what if you were in that bank when it was getting robbed and your car was out in the 15-minute parking zone? How would you get out to move your car? And that's exactly what happens at the start of that book. And, uh, and, and then I thought, it was just and that, that book, almost, it's the only book, that first chapter almost wrote itself. And when Ed Kennedy stopped, you know, foils the bank robber, he becomes a hero for the day. And uh, he's in the local newspaper. And then he, because he plays cards with his friends, someone sends him a playing card, which is the Ace of Diamonds. And it has three addresses on it. And so someone has, has seen him as someone who can help people around the town. And, uh, and, and so that's where the idea came from. And, uh, and it was, that was a book that I wrote, pretty much one part I wrote, and then I, I thought, now what am I going to do with part two? And then I, I finished that, what do I do with part three? And it's written in, it's written in the suits of the, the cards. I'm always looking for a kind of structure that I, that I need to keep myself inside of. And uh, when you hear me, I guess when you hear me speak, uh, you can tell why I have to do that, <laughs> uh, just to keep myself... <laughs> inside the one you know the, the structure to keep me sort of safe okay tack thank you okay so we're wrapping this talk up uh, can i shoot you some really quick questions mm -hmm. a challenge for you <laughs> because yeah, no one wants to be here till midnight you know so um, because there are some things that i uh, was saying in the beginning oh we'll get back to this but we don't really have time to get back to them but one question. You have uh, held a TED talk in Australia about uh, the benefits of failure, mm -hmm. failing. Um, and you talk that about that you're happy that the book took 13 years and you've kind of lived through some sort of hellfire of self-doubt. How <laughs> is all this good? This I am very interested in <laughs> as a writer. <laughs> yeah, I think it can be summed up by, sort of by saying... If if it was easy, everyone would do it, and uh, and I think that's how I feel about writing. That what gives it its value is that you do have to fight for it, mm -hmm. and uh, the things that we, the things that we're most proud of are usually things that didn't come easily to us, and nothing has ever come easily to me in terms of being good at things. You know, I'm you know I've had a, an easy life, you know, and I had parents who struggled, 
uh, to make a good life for, for their children, so I, in that way. But I've never, I'm never good at anything when I start. You know, it's like, like we went skiing for the first time a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, the, and so I got one lesson, and the ski instructor came to me and said, "I realise I am going on now." Uh, so he said, "Are you okay?" He said, "You know," and I, I said, "I just need some time on my own <laughs> just to figure it out," you know, and because I, that's how I do things. I, I practice and practice and practice and practice until I get it right, and uh, that's why I'm glad that the book took 13 years, and uh, and it's little personalities and idiosyncrasies are because of that but also I, I think this book showed me that I am actually a writer and uh, because I could never have finished this book if I wasn't probably mm. and uh, that doesn't mean I can write another one <laughs> but we'll Next see. Next question, what are you working on now? Okay. Can you write another one? Well, I have to, because I'm not qualified to do anything else, <laughs> except maybe be a dog walker. And, uh, Good enough. So, uh, but I got the idea out of the ashes of Bridge of Clay, and I think Maggie actually has a story. And it's tell. Maggie Carrie Novak's, Novak's little sister. Yes, she w and she was. And I, I just have this idea, even though her parents are older and whatever, that maybe they do have another daughter. And I got this idea. Uh, I Originally, Maggie was going to tell the story as a jigsaw puzzle. So you can see all the ideas that come and all the complicated things that you do. Uh, but So I've always had this idea of a, a book called The Jigsawist. Mm. And, uh, and, but it, now I realise it's probably about a horse. And I, there was a, but a, a girl and a horse. And the horse is called the Jigsawist, maybe. You don't know. It's like a blurry thing at the moment. Mm. But there was a, ho a horse in Australia recently, and it was a very, really great sprinter. And I, I have a, a love and hate relationship with horse racing because it is cruel and it is, but it's also a part of sporting culture and all that kind of thing. But there was this horse called Chautauqua, had a great name. It was a grey horse. And it won the same race, great race, three years in a row, then went to Hong Kong and won in Hong Kong, which is almost impossible, and then came back to Australia, and then the next time the horse raced, the gates opened and the horse didn't run. And so for months and months, and every time the horse would try, they'd put the horse in it, he'd just, the gates would open and the horse would stay still. Mm. And that's what gave me the idea for the book. And uh, And... Basically, I just thought of this girl who her parents don't want her to become a jockey for many obvious reasons, mm. and, uh, but she's the only one who can get this horse to jump out of the gate. And, uh, and that's just sort of the beginning of the idea. And then you ask yourself, how much world do I want to build around this? And it is, I think, a companion book to Bridge of Clay. And the Dunbar brothers will be in it. I mm. think Clay especially needs to be in it. And the reason I realise it may be called the Jigsawist is because this is a girl who I think it's her job in a way to put things back together mm. and to put her parents back together and in some ways to put Clay back together as well. And so, but I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I can do it. And, but what I will say is it won't be as big as Bridge of Clay. Mm. I'm never doing that ever again. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you. Thanks, Ika. Thanks, Thank you. Thanks to all of you.